0: You're listening to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman, and I hope you enjoyed our bonus Thanksgiving episode about Holy Apostles Soup Kitchen on Wednesday. But today we're getting back to our regularly scheduled programming with episode two of our series about the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. This week, you're going to meet Sarah Meister, a curator in MoMA's photography department we had a pretty wide-ranging discussion about um, picking new works for the museum's collection, coming up with exhibition ideas, the nuances of writing wall text, and just all sorts of other good stuff. But before letting the interview roll, I just want to explain ahead of time who I'm talking about when I ask Sarah about the museum's trustees, just because if I don't now, I think there's a chance some people might get a little confused at that point in the interview. Trustees are the people who sit on a museum board, and in general, they tend to be wealthy donors. And as you're going to learn, one of a curator's many, many jobs is figuring out how to convince and conjole these wealthy folks into seeing the value of different works of art. I hope you enjoy. What's your name and what do you do?
1: My name is Sarah Meister and I'm a curator in the Department of Photography here at MoMA.
0: I think when you ask like someone to list off jobs at a museum, curator is probably the first one that comes to mind, but as I sat down and kind of thought about this interview, I, realized, I really have no idea what a curator actually does. Like, I've been going to museums my whole life. I even worked in a museum briefly as, like, doing basically checklists when I was in college. But somehow I have no concept of
1: <laughs> what this che- job— Checklists are a good place to start, for
0: sure. What this job actually entails. So how, like, how would you just kind of— you know, in an elevator, summarize, like, what kind of stuff you do?
1: So, I'd say as a museum curator, and there are other people who call themselves curators of, like, food halls and stores and things like that. <laughs> no, but, no, but a real but curator. But let's say, thank you, yeah. thank you. So, as a museum curator, I would say there are three large buckets that you could use to put what I do every day into. I work on acquisitions, so that's acquiring works for the museum collection, I work on exhibitions and publications drawn from the collection and and other places too. And then the third part is just sort of miscellany, maybe, (laughs) Um, meaning research initiatives connected to the collection, conservation efforts um, to care for the collection, thinking about how it's imaged or stored or um, other things. So sort of the third one is a Not a small bucket, but... um, It's the grab bag. It's the grab bag. We need a grab bag.
0: So of those three, which takes up the most of your time?
1: Probably the grab bag, but (laughs) it's a, no, it's a fair, it's a pretty equal division. In other words, acquisitions take a lot of time, both in terms of strategizing about what should you be acquiring, and then once you think of what you should be acquiring, it's a question of finding it. Negotiating for it, things like that. How you're going to pay for it? Um, how are you going to care for it once it gets here? How are you going to get it here in the first place? And then exhibitions and publications take an enormous amount of time, and sometimes that's writing, sometimes that's thinking about sequencing, working with designers for books, and then the grab bag is sort of everything else, and that's pretty substantial. The emails flooding
0: your inbox. Yeah, every day. you know,
1: especially at a place like MoMA you have you're fortunate that people care about what you think and so that means that your inbox is pretty full on a pretty regular basis
0: so let's start with acquisitions okay okay how do you decide that there's a piece of art you want and how do you go about getting it
1: well, so we spend a lot of time establishing what we call strategic priorities. And what that means is we look at the collection. And this is my whole department, not just me. Yeah, um, We look at the collection and we say, where are our strengths? Where are our weaknesses? And then what do we want to prioritize? Like, what do we not have that we really want to have to tell the story of photography yeah. writ large? So sometimes those priorities you just know them, you study them, you you know, you certain you know a certain chapter in art history is underrepresented in the collection. And sometimes it can be things like travel helps you discover something that you're like, wow, I never knew that existed and now that I know it does, I have to figure out a way to expand the history to write that into it. And so I've been fortunate to travel, like, to South America a fair amount. Mm-hmm. And I remember there's a group called the Photocine Club Bandiranch, which was like the photo cine club based in Sao Paulo. And at first, I knew about one figure from it, and then I learned another, and then I learned there was a woman. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then all of a sudden, I was like, wow, this is a whole universe that just wasn't in any of the textbooks that I
0: knew of. You, you said that you're, you're trying to tell the story of photography at moment. What story is the department trying to tell? Because, like, you can't tell the entire—is that—is right. the point to tell the entire story in the collection, or what do you Well, maybe that maybe
1: here? the word the story, maybe yeah. it's a problem of our article. Yeah. I would say we try to tell stories in the multiple, mm. and the— you know, those stories can have—you want those stories to change, to be responsive to the current moment. You want those stories to also be responsive to the whole history. And so partly what I love about photography is that it's not just the history of works that were meant to be framed and hang on museums or in galleries. It's like photography is so messy and amorphous and omnipresent that, in fact, what I love is that we collect snapshots and we collect amateur work and we collect scientific work and photojournalism and fashion. And, you know, when you're doing all of those things together, you're being true to some sense of what photography has been and maybe more,
0: yeah, because I guess you know at the start of photography, it wasn't even really considered art. It was considered science. Right. It was, and then you, it sort of became a novelty, in those like those Victorian photos, yeah, and, you a,
1: and a collectible, and a keepsake, and uh, and it wasn't that people were deaf to its artistic potential. And certainly, some of the best ones that you have from the 19th century have an exquisite sense of composition or scale or texture. But but you're right. When I was a I was trying to think of—I I wrote a chapter recently about 19th century American photography, and we ended up. I ended up calling it not necessarily art because it was as if art was kind of beside the point and it was everything else that was making it so interesting.
0: Does that make your job figuring out what to collect a little bit more difficult? Because it's not like you're just looking for— Great masters or underappreciated masters.
1: Yeah, a lot of what we look at, maybe we don't even know who made it, or maybe it doesn't even matter who made it. Um, And so it doesn't, I don't know if it makes my job more difficult per se, but it certainly changes the rules. Like, I don't think there are a lot of painting curators at the museum who are acquiring unauthored work.
0: Where are you finding work? I guess, I'm wondering, because, you know, you you said you're sometimes, I mean, you're, you're L- looking for all these different types of photos and some that might be ephemera. Where where are you going to to find stuff that you might acquire?
1: So we're lucky. People bring things to us, and we travel a fair amount. Mm-hmm. And when you travel, like Brazil. You, yeah, Brazil or anywhere. Um, I was in Paris last week, and you travel in order to see things that don't come to you that you feel. That you should be attentive to. But I know one of my favorite things is to go, there's a snapshot collector downtown. And he scours eBay and the flea markets, and he finds all these incredible snapshots and then he makes it so easy for me because when he finds something really great, he says, "Come on down and check this out, and then I only have to go so far as to get on a subway so that's not so hard,
0: but does he like run a store or is this just no, a, is he this does, just like a- he's
1: um he's an incredibly passionate uh, and now seasoned collector who but is really focuses on snapshots.
0: So on, you've got like a secret weapon, a secret anonymous weapon, and you, the, well, you could tell me his name, but you'd have to murder me, kind of thing, right? Like
1: I wouldn't do that, but I would say actually, what's great about him is that also, if any other photography curator is listening to this, all of them will know his name. Oh, really? Yeah, because he's very generous to all to many museums, not just MoMA. So,
0: so is that is that a thing that a lot of the photo curators do? Kind of go just looking around the internet for images on sale too. Is that part of it, or
1: well? I don't really look on the Internet for things to acquire because it points to sort of one of the most fundamental things that I think people need to understand about photography, which is that a photographic image, something that lives on your phone or on your computer screen or projected on a wall— that's an image, whereas a photograph is an object. It has a scale, a materiality, a so, you know, and all of those things, how big it is, how small it is, what kind of paper it's printed on, what are the stamps and the signatures, all of those things tell you something about it. So if you think of a photograph as an object, it's harder to do it
0: It's harder to know what you're looking at when you're looking online. And that's important when you're collecting for historical purposes. I I would say
1: even contemporary purposes. You know, if we work in a museum, so we put things on view and you're not collecting an idea, you're collecting an object. So it matters what that object is it doesn't mean that you would discriminate against it because it's little or because it was made in russia after the revolution is on super thin paper or because it was in the new york times picture morgue and it has tears and stamps and creases on it so those flaws or that life that's evident in the object don't make it less interesting but it means it matters to that you actually see it
0: i know moma does collect uh pieces of digital design, digital art. Do you not collect any digital photos or you do? Or how does that work for you guys?
1: We do collect digital things. And it's interesting to see now in the 21st century, like sometimes you're collecting a digital thing as a record or an artifact or a way of extending the life of something that you know in a different medium. But sometimes also a work might Be meant by an artist or a maker to live digitally. And so when that's the case, then it still is a matter of like, how is this meant to live? So a digital image still, or maybe you think of it an easier example for photography is let's say a slide. A slide still has a materiality. And even if you digitize that slide and you show that projected image, there's still something that you're collecting. And there are you know really interesting artists who are making things that are digital but they they still care how you encounter it or they think about that
0: yeah and so it so if there is something that is just meant to be seen on a screen that's how you would collect it yeah. if it's meant to be printed out at any size on a printer however then you collect it that way but right. it's part and of And you
1: sort of hope that it matters to the maker so Stephen Shore in his retrospective there were he's an incredible Instagrammer and those pictures that he posts on Instagram are meant to be encountered in that way and so we put iPads in the galleries to allow people to see those you're not going to print that out and put it on a right. wall. Right. I worry when it's like, oh, it doesn't matter what scale it is, what size, you know, what material it takes. And you're like,
0: well, maybe it should. Once you've decided you, you want something, you encounter that Brazilian photo while traveling or you find that snapshot, what do you do then?
1: So we then we work on bringing it to the museum. Well, I should say, before we work on bringing it to the museum, then I talk to my boss and I say, is this something we're
0: interested yeah. in proposing for, <laughs> is is for
1: acquisition? Th- Make sure he's on board.
0: Yeah. How do you, uh, how, is that a formal, like, is there a form you fill out? Say, No, like, it's, is there it's blissfully,
1: pitch? blissfully informal. It's lunch, so, is it? <laughs> no, it's just popping by his office. I mean, we talk about our priorities enough that if I'm bringing something to him, he we speak the same language and I say, oh, I found this great opportunity. What do you think? So we we talk so much. It's quite informal at that stage. So if he gives it a green light, and usually, you know, it's a sign of a nice department. Is like when you're enthusiastic about something, that enthusiasm is mirrored by others. So once we say, okay, let's propose this for acquisition. So one of the important things to know about a curator at least a curator at MoMA, is that we may propose something for acquisition, but it's not approved until the Committee on Photography approves it. Mm -hmm. And it won't go into the collection until the committee approves it. So we do a lot of steps in the interim to bring it to the museum, to do research on it, to present it at a meeting, but we don't actually officially acquire it until the committee approves
0: it. And who's on that committee?
1: Those are trustees, collectors, enthusiasts. We have we have a great committee. It's about 25 people, and they're tasked with the responsibility of approving all of our acquisitions.
0: And so you have to kind of make a case, you have to come up with a case to them.
1: Yes. So, so we, we spend a lot of time thinking about how we're going to make the case. And we write these little... Acqui- that's where it gets written. We write acquisition justifications. and But sometimes even bringing it here, you know, the import laws, it's super important for the museum to bring things in properly. So that means that the value upon importation needs to match the insurance value. And there's customs agents and all of this crazy, crazy stuff. There's business stuff to be taken <laughs> care <of>. Real business. <laughs> some... and, and lots of people are, you know... I, I guess I'm sure this is true for all museums, but you know sometimes he, someone from we. Well, I I don't want to name too many names, but we sometimes acquire something from a country where, let's say, we haven't acquired something recently, and they're like, "Oh, no worries, I'll just bring it on the suitcase and drop it off." And you're like, "No,
0: don't! Yeah. <laughs> you can't! You do can't that. traffic the photo! Um, no, <laughs> no
1: trafficking! So if that happens, we literally have to send it back and then have it imported oh, really? properly. Yep. Oh,
0: that and that's happened before. Yes, yeah, it sounds like. Fortunately, you...
1: now we're. We catch it yeah. before, so when anyone because well, you know it
0: might happen, right? So
1: <laughs> now, especially if it's a new someone we haven't worked with before, we're like, okay, let's be super clear. And that
0: seems like something that would be specific to photography in particular, because it's so easy to, to travel a to photo. As opposed, yeah. to, you're not gonna you're not gonna bring the Monet. And, well, there's the
1: great story you know, of, of the Malevich being wrapped around Alfred Barr's umbrella. And well, be- what, what is this? Uh-huh. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, that's <laughs> a, this story. I've never heard this. It's did? not really my story to tell, but. Um, I'm 90 and also now, of course, we're I'm being on the record for this, but we, somebody should fact check this. My understanding is that Alfred Barr was in Russia and was trying to bring a Malevich painting into the U.S. and that he literally wrapped it around his umbrella. And I'm pretty sure this is his white on white, like the iconic. So you can unroll a canvas and bring it into the country. It's not that much bigger than a. Yeah. photograph. But yeah, that's, um, <laughs> those are the good old, you know, those are the good old days. Right, no, Alfred Barr was. Would... Alfred Barr was the director of the museum, the founding director of the museum. Well,
0: so it was within his, you know, if he wanted to bring it that way, you know, who was going to tell him no, except <laughs> for customs. Right.
1: <laughs> except for the United States government. Although I think uh, certainly now even Glenn Lowry, our director, he would not bring a photograph. He would not bring a work of art to the museum rolled around an umbrella. Like we we appreciate that doing it by the book is
0: um, important. So when you're making this case to the committee, are you doing like, you know, are, are you getting up with a slide deck and making the presentation? Is this like your, your pitch meeting? Like, how does that work?
1: So we have three acquisition meetings a year, and they're big deals. It's almost like we put on an exhibition three times a year, but in private spaces in the museum that nobody can see. And then we put it up one day and we take it down the next day. And we put up labels and we frame things and we put them on easels. And yes, we have – so all the works are there. That's really important to speak to that materiality. It's like it doesn't matter if it's an idea. It matters what is it that we're actually Mm -hmm. acquiring. Although for A&D, sometimes that is an idea, but that's another story. So we get all this together, and then we sit down, and it's very formal, and we have nice snacks and, you know, Perrier and water. And – we try to make the case for why each of these things is an essential addition to the museum collection. And whether it's a gift or a purchase, we need to say, why do we need this for the museum?
0: And so you're doing that three times a year. How many pieces will you be pitching at each one of those?
1: It varies, but it's usually over A hundred works per meeting. Now, sometimes those might be 12 works by the same artist, so it's not quite as crazy as it seems. And
0: that's just you? That's just photography. Oh, wow. And how many departments does the
1: museum have? There are six curatorial departments in the museum.
0: And so, and they're all kind of pitching like that.
1: Yeah, where I mean, it, painting and sculpture acquires fewer objects, mm-hmm. but I their budget's a little higher than ours. Truth be told, <laughs> um, but someone like A and D probably acquires about the same number of works that we do.
0: Is the process any different when you're acquiring a work from a very famous artist, like when you want a Richard Avedon or Diane Arbus, versus those snapshots you're talking about?
1: The process is the same no matter what the nature of the work is. Sometimes with our committee, there's a level, a base level of understanding. So there, you know, if we're proposing a Robert Frank photograph, everybody knows who Robert Frank is. Everybody knows why it's important. Then it might become a case of like, why this piece? But it's always a question of justification. You know, why, why does the museum need this? And I will say we're offered... A really generous number of gifts that we decline because we think, you know what, this isn't going to live the most active life here that it could live. We have other examples by this artist that we think are more likely to go on the walls. So we we spend a fair amount of time really trying to say like, what do we really need and what do we want? And if something is going to live a better life somewhere else, then we'll try to make sure that that happens
0: like you said, the trustees play a big role in acquisitions. And I know that like for big ticket items, often they play a very significant role. I guess, do you ever find yourself having to lobby like individual trustees? Is there, is that like a bit like kind of one-on-one type thing or is it?
1: Yeah. I mean, many of the most important acquisitions that I've for which I've been responsible, absolutely have happened thanks to the generosity of one or a small handful of incredibly generous committee members or trustees. So let's say we want to acquire something and I go to my boss and I say, isn't this really great? You know, I think we should really have it for the collection. Mm -hmm. And he might say, I totally agree, but we don't have enough money for it. And so then he'll give me a green light to go try to Find that money for it. And if it's a trustee, we make sure that we talk to our development office because they may be being asked for something else from Mm -hmm. someone else in the museum. If it's someone on our photo committee and, you know, I, I call them, you can ask them the poor things. I call them a fair amount and I say, hey, I've got this really exciting thing you know do you want to come in and take a look and but so, so to
0: some extent you're trying to convince them to donate and say hey this I is I try to say yeah you know, this, is, would, would, would you please
1: it. make it possible for this to be in the museum collection Yeah. and the small thing that we can offer in return is that their name would be on the wall label which seems they don't they don't do it for that they they really do it <laughs> You know, because they think that whatever we're proposing, yeah. if we've persuaded them that it's
0: important and unique. So their taste matters a lot for what a collection might look look like in the end. So is part of your role kind of trying to educate them or do you like try to talk to them and, and keep them abreast of what you're working on in between when you're actually trying to sell them on a specific work? Or?
1: Absolutely. And also we try to think of works that particular collectors might want to support. So, you know, you you develop a sense of what a committee member's taste is. And then if you find something that you think is really great and you're like, oh, they're really gonna love this. You know, either it's a work by a woman artist and this is someone who's always supported work by women artists or they really like nineteenth century things and you hope that they like this nineteenth century thing.
0: And I guess also that probably helps for when you're doing the like committee, because then you can get them to lobby their their yeah, colleagues. Or... They
1: the committee, you know we, they're there in the committee. Yeah. So if something is fully funded and we're presenting it to the committee, that's a yeah. much, that's um, a yeah, yeah, that makes it a little bit easier because we're, um, it just makes it easier.
0: Yeah, it's already funded. <laughs> that's right. How often are you trying to poach a, <laughs> a a photo you saw at another museum? Does that happen ever or is that
1: um, Pretty rare. Well, we don't think of it as poaching. Yeah, you're not going kind to of have like <laughs> an elephant gun to take out the guard. But. Um, no, we, we you know, sure, there are a lot of times when I'll walk through another museum and I'll see something that, a you know, a colleague has acquired and I'll be like, oh, jealous, jealous. But the nice thing is we, I don't know, these things tend to work out. You know, it's we do when there's a. Paris Photo is a photo fair in Paris that just happened. And it's when that happens, you certainly want to make sure that if there's a unique work that speaks to your acquisition priorities, that you see it first and put it on reserve before colleagues and other museums do that. But there's a pretty good sense of collegiality in the field, too. So... You know, every once in a while, there'll be something where we'll want it. But if another museum gets it, it's like, well, at least it's well cared for there. you know, they'll love it too.
0: Do you guys ever bid for things at auctions?
1: It's rare, but it happens, and I occasionally I'm the one like calling in the phone bid, and I find it honestly the most nerve-wracking part of my job because. It's such a foreign universe. It We really don't do it that often, but every once in a while something comes up and you're bidding and you're, you know, listening in. And we have great – some of our committee members, the people who approve our acquisitions, they, like, coach me through it because they bid at auction all the time. So they're like, so you want to be calm? You want to wait until the, you know, bidding dies down? <laughs> it's – um." It's another universe.
0: Is there, like, someone there, like, while you're on the phone, like, chill, chill?
1: (laughs) No, (laughs) I I could use that, or I should have, like, pills would have been helpful. (laughs) Um, But, no, the other thing is the auction houses, they're true pros. So when they know that you're a real novice, you know, it's about getting a good person on the other line who makes sure that you really don't mess it up. But, of course, you can't reveal to them, like, what your ceiling is. So...
0: Yeah, it's it, still nerve But you thing. do. Uh, they give you a ceiling, essentially. And <gasps> they say, yeah, they're like, you cannot.
1: A hundred percent, there's a ceiling. <laughs> um, so, yes, that actually to acquire something at auction, you have to get approval from the committee in advance to bid up to a certain amount. So even though that amount is confidential or known only to the curators in the committee, no, I'm not allowed to just willy-nilly go bidding for things at auction.
0: But – so, typically, it sounds like you know you are finding things that are either in someone's private collection and you're acquiring them for the museum or you are finding stuff that's not in a collection at all that's sort of just floating out there in the other either with
1: well it it's a lot of a lot of great photographs are with the families of the people who made them, so that's a great um source of you know I've met a lot of families in Brazil, for instance who have the photographs that they're other previous generations made, and they've just been holding on to them because maybe they weren't
0: worth that much or they didn't know what to do with them. So what's the reaction from a family in I mean, like, are are these people who like live in Rio like they're fairly cosmopolitan or I mean,
1: it's a range. I would say sometimes you're talking to somebody and they've never heard of MoMA and they couldn't care less and they you know, it doesn't matter. But that so that's actually a little harder.
0: Well, I was going to say, what's the reaction when you go to someone and say, I'm from a museum in the United States, a, a large museum in the United States, and I want to look through your family photos to figure out if they're historically significant and maybe buy them?
1: Well,
0: <laughs> that sounds pretty daunting.
1: We actually, you know, you try to be conscious of the fact that for those people who have heard of MoMA or who know that museums exist, even if they don't know MoMA per se, although most of them do know MoMA, you try not to go to them unless you have a pretty good sense that they know why it would might be a good thing for a work by their, you know, in their family to come to the museum. So you're not, um, you know, and sometimes I'll go see work in Brazil where I'll say, this really ought to stay here. Like, this is a piece of your national heritage. It wouldn't even be right to bring it to the museum. You know, so I'm I'm really glad that the, there are p- private and public collections in Brazil that are taking care of this same material because... We don't want to be taking things where they where they would live an active, fertile life in their home
0: country. We don't want to be pillaging, right? Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. I feel like we're talking about we've mentioned Brazil enough times. Okay. I, now, I I feel like I just want to know a little bit more, even though this isn't strictly about okay. the nature of your job. But he does tell me a little bit more about this kind of movement of photography that you're going sure. and researching. Sure, there?
1: Uh, super briefly. I there's a group called the Photosynic Club Bandiranche, and they were a group of amateurs who were active in Brazil throughout a lot of the 20th century. But I'm particularly interested in what they were doing between, let's say, the mid-1940s to the mid-1960s. And they made photographs that they then circulated internationally in these salons. And they salons went to Paris and Japan and or Paris and Tokyo. And they they're incredibly interesting works, both in an experimental sense and speaking to a sort of a larger humanist moment. So these pictures circulated in an incredible international network, and they were both humanist pictures of their family, of the environment, of their neighborhoods, of their architecture. But they also had these great experimental impulses of using negative printing, abstraction, and... They basically are very well known, and they're very good scholars looking at this work in Brazil. But when I ask any of my other North American colleagues, it's like no one's ever heard of them.
0: And you know, the way I, I was always taught photography in, in college, you know, back when I had a little time to be a photo nerd, was that it, it was overwhelmingly Europe and American, like West Western, like and not like Latin America. But it was, it was that seemed to be where most of the focus was. So this would kind of counter that narrative
1: yeah i I think partly what the whole museum and the whole world right now you realize that the narratives that you've been handed are kind of maybe grossly inadequate to think about the way art was made over the course of history so how you go about filling out those gaps is super interesting and whether one of the things i love about this photo club group is that these amateurs were making these incredibly experimental, important works, but there were also pictures of like kittens and little babies with bows in their hair and cute girls smiling. Reminds and, me of
0: something. Mm, <laughs> it's almost right. as if Yeah.
1: And it, you know the thing the fact that these things can coexist yeah. side by side in the same group is super interesting to me as well.
0: We've we've been taking pictures of kittens And we'll always be taking pictures of kittens as long as with cameras. Yes.
1: I mean, now I'm a dog person, but But, yes. Yes. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this.
0: For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less
1: money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value.
0: Just go to ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy
1: dot com slash easy cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions
0: apply. Are you collecting these photos right now um, or researching these photos right now because you want to put them in an exhibition or just because you want them in the collection to have on hand as sort of in storage?
1: So we really try not to acquire things just so that they sit in storage. That's like a pretty core value. So, yes, I do hope that with this and plan with this Brazilian material to do a book and an exhibition drawn from that that probably won't happen until 2020 at the earliest. So um, and that's in part because what I hope to bring to it is new scholarship, sort of new perspectives on this work and to make sure that for people who, don't know it, that they are given the apparatus to really understand it and understand its place.
0: What What's the work that you had to fight hardest or jump through the most hoops to uh, acquire?
1: So I think some of the most complicated acquisitions come from when you're also trying to figure out precisely what it is that you want to be acquiring. And sometimes sketching that out, you don't necessarily know What's the universe of work from which you can make a selection? And then if you can, especially if there are language barriers and geographic barriers and things like that, you can have an acquisition that seems like a simple enough idea, but it's actually not always straightforward to say this is the work by which this artist should be known in the museum's
0: collection. Can you give me an example, one like that? So,
1: let's say there's an artist named Paz Erasures and she's a fantastic photographer from Chile. Mm. And I traveled to Chile and saw these extraordinary photographs that she made there. But, you know, when you're there, you don't you're not just making an acquisition on the spot. You're You then, you leave and you think, okay, those were amazing, but should I be, I need to know everything else that might be available so that I can make sure that what I saw is the right group. And then once you're sure that what you saw is the right group, you're like, well, what does that actually mean? Can I afford it? How is it going to get shipped? You know, so Mm -hmm. it can take months, sometimes even years for an acquisition to come to fruition because of a whole bunch, a slew of complications, wrinkles.
0: When Once you've decided you want to acquire something, have you ever had to pitch it multiple times? There, oh,
1: I mean, yeah. almost everything I pitch multiple times. Um, Rare is the instance where you pitch something. I mean, it, it happens occasionally where you have just this incredible, unique acquisition and you pitch it to just the right person and they say immediately, yes, I, you know, I totally understand why you need that and I want to help.
0: Yeah. And when I say when you pitch, when, when I mean, like to the committee or multiple. That, that like you yeah, that would be
1: through. sort of fundraising to a committee member in advance yeah. of the presentation to the committee.
0: Yeah. And you just go through. OK. And does something ever go to the committee for like the vote and it gets turned down and it comes back next year?
1: Usually by the time it goes to the committee, yeah. we have sort of refined our argument enough yeah. that, it, it, you know, it happens. And sometimes there's a lot of discussion why this, why now, why this print, why not that print, why this work, not that work, Mm. even why this artist. But usually that's part of, like, a healthy discussion and not so much a prelude to a rejection.
0: Oh, okay. So I guess this is something I should have asked before, but how often does something ever get rejected once you're at the— or is it kind of—
1: It's very rare. rare. By the time you get to the committee, you know, it can inspire a lot of fiery discussion, but um, actual permanent— Final rejection is um, is not that common. You've done in enough fact very uncommon. You've yeah. done
0: enough pre planning at that we point. We try. We try. You know, and if yeah. it's
1: controversial, we've probably even talked to some of them in advance of the meeting to say, "What are your thoughts about this?" You so, know.
0: So this you're, you're, it's kind of like Mitch McConnell's approach to the <laughs> oh my Senate. Gosh, no, like it doesn't get a floor please. vote unless you know you got sixty <laughs> votes for it. Kind of thing. Heaven
1: help us. Um, um. Sorry, that's the one. I promise <laughs> it's the only time you'll
0: ever be compared to. Chicago. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's, that's, that's interesting to know, though. Is there a piece that, yeah, is there, like, one that got away? Is there a piece that you, like, I mean, you're they're, pining after?
1: Yeah. There are actually are a lot. I feel like if you don't care enough about the things that you're seeing, that if they go somewhere else, you you feel ambivalent about it, then you're probably not that good at your job. So. You know, whether it's something you see in a fair that there was this extraordinary uh, Japanese post-war work that I saw in Paris last week that I would have done anything for it mm-hmm. and it wasn't available. and it's unique. and i I don't know who has it, but I'm keeping my eye out for it. And when I see it, I'll always think,
0: Mm, <laughs> that hurts a little. <laughs> Just a little bit.
1: But if it doesn't hurt, I mean, it's a good rule of thumb, mm-hmm. you know, when you're thinking of an acquisition. If if you think, oh, I wouldn't mind if the, you know, Guggenheim or the Whitney or the Met had that on their walls and not us,
0: mm-hmm. then
1: it's probably not worth yeah. pursuing. Yeah. Whereas if you think, oh, my gosh, every time I see that on the w- walls of another museum, I'm going to, you know, have a little piece of my heart taken out, then that's a good sign that
0: you should— try harder. Yeah. Then it's worth it. Then it's worth making the pitch. So th- that brings us to the second bucket which is exhibitions. How do you start even, you know, conceiving one? How do you how do you get the idea for one?
1: So Exhibitions can come from really anything. Sometimes you're fitting a particular need, like the um, the museum will say, okay, we have this space in 2020. We'd like to hear proposals from, a, you know, from a 20 modernist proposals. And so you'll think to yourself, well, what hasn't been done? What would be timely or important? And usually I think a lot of the more interesting ideas come out of a really great work of art that you're excited to share and so you think okay I want to build a story around this what other voices what other works of art do I want to bring into it you you try to get your idea clear enough that you then go to the we have what we call an exhibition committee and that's full curators from all departments and a few senior administrators but like no one from marketing or development, no trustees. So it's really a wonderfully pure exchange of ideas between colleagues. And if you can convince your colleagues in the exhibition committee idea that your idea is worth doing, mm-hmm. then, then that's good. And then it becomes scheduled and then you really get to work on it, it.
0: It sounds like you guys try to maintain kind of the the equivalent journalism of like a, you know, a Iron curtain, or it was, it's iron curtain, uh, a wall between edit business and edit. Uh, that yeah. is, that's sort of the idea. You try. I mean, you, and you I, strive for.
1: I hear. You know, I talk to a lot of colleagues at other museums who have to answer to focus groups and who are put pressure on to sort of do exhibitions that speak to audience. And one of the great things about working here is that a lot of our best ideas, the trustees and Glenn Lowry, our director, they really think it's the ideas that define who we are, not necessarily the specific marketability of a given project. And so that means that we do many exhibitions that don't necessarily, I mean, I can't say I've done a lot of, oh, maybe any blockbusters. But. As you say,
0: people talk a <laughs> lot. I mean, guys, people talk a lot about now how museums are sort of dominated by blockbusters. That's, right. is that, I mean. But I
1: think if you looked at MoMA's program, mm-hmm. n- um, usually we try to have an anchor exhibition, one that we think will have broader appeal or interest or a connection. But there's so, so much of what we do from collection gallery installations to mid-scale shows to that really have zero or close to zero commercial appeal and are more answering to you know, why do we look at art these days? How could we look at it differently?
0: Well, how many I guess how many exhibitions does MoMA have going at a, at a time, roughly? Do you have any idea? Or... Well,
1: right now we're in a period of construction, so it's a little bit constrained. But we have multiple spaces at multiple scales from individual galleries. And one of the things that I think I really love about the way we install the collection now is that if you think of each gallery as its own mini exhibition, those can be removed and inserted, almost independent of what's around them. And so what that means, you know, our poor frame shop, our poor graphics department, what that means is that, you know, all of those really are little exhibitions and they are all changing all the time. And that's, you know, we're not going to take Starry Night off view, but we are going to try to make the experience of coming into the galleries a fresh one, even for people who live in New York and come here all the time.
0: And so that gives you some flexibility, too, for scale for what you want to do. You don't have to propose something that's going to be an entire floor or something Yeah.
1: And, you know, especially, I think, as a photo curator, I like working in that sort of mid-scale. I think it's super exciting to think about what's the tightest way you could make this argument. Um, How do you use the collection to expand an idea without necessarily worrying about loans? Because the collection is pretty extraordinary and so getting to use it and think about how it's displayed is like a thrill.
0: So I want to jump off into kind of a a, a detour for a second because we're I I again I'm about to ask you about how you actually go about researching exhibition okay. once you actually have approval but um what's your background? How did you End up a curator. I, you know, what is where? What was your route? Into
1: I have job? a fairly unusual background as a curator in that I came to photography from my middle school years as a practitioner, and it was only when I was in college that I decided, you know, this darkroom isn't. You know, I don't think I want to spend college in a dank basement. Oh, and really? So, I loved
0: the dark room. That's where like, I like. Oh. I did. I would like put on like the Clash and just like work on develop, so, like rinsing the film and everything. Allow
1: me to. So my high school dark room was no. my favorite place to be, and I spent every Saturday in high school in the dark room with three friends, and we. I loved the chemicals. I loved the dark and this.
0: Yeah, the fixer and, smell. Right, which it was just permeates so everything. Great. It's like a Vinegary for people who've never been in a dark room because you know millennials. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like the it's a very vinegary Gurry smell. It kind of permeates the whole place. But anyway. And you
1: know, and you have to like roll your film just right. And then you have to get your exposure right, and you have to go back and forth between the dark and the light. And anyway, so I loved being in a dark room. But I guess I got to college and I was like, I don't know, maybe this isn't right. And I, I had an internship at the Whitney. And there were two uh, people in my college who were older than I was who really were like, you don't want to, you know, I mean, truthfully, I was a terrible photographer when it all comes <laughs> down to it. And they helped me see. Well, you know, you could study photography as a branch of art history mm-hmm. instead of making bad photographs, and that seemed to be a pretty promising <laughs> path. So then I became an art history major, and I was hired right out of college to work here at MoMA.
0: Okay, and so you so you had this this was your academic focus, and you ended up at the museum, and you kind of worked up since. So, and that I'm asking because you know you're. I, I guess as a curator, your job is to research and make academic arguments to some extent. So I guess that is your you've studied right, in school. I don't,
1: I don't like to think of myself as an anti-intellectual just because I don't have a PhD. But yes, the the research is, you know, it's so seductive. Like you when you want to know something well and you work with a group of colleagues who don't accept that you couldn't know something, or at least that you have to know what you can know. And whatever you can't know, you also need to be able to explain why you can't know that. And, you know, I work with incredible, you know, the research focus between all of my colleagues is a major preoccupation. So we have a research assistant in the department who, when we were doing this Dorothea Lange book on her migrant mother photograph, Working with the librarians from the San Francisco Public Library, tracking down the microfilm for the San Francisco News from March of 1936, so that we could read the articles, so that we could uncover the source of the captions for the pictures that are in the Library of Congress. It's like,
0: yeah, you're really that's real good. Yeah, yeah, that's like (laughs) really research. Yeah, serious research. Um, That's like. Or, primary source great digging <laughs> and
1: you know sometimes you really sometimes there's a detective aspect to it or looking at installation views of the world's fair in paris in 1900 and seeing when the very photographs that you're studying are when you find a good enough image of it you can enlarge it and see how they were displayed there and also though research in terms of understanding arguments that have been made contemporary arguments historical arguments you know you. It's um, ignorance is no, is not (laughs) acceptable. (laughs) So
0: once you've gotten the exhibition approved and you know you're going to do it, how much do you actually know about the subject? Like, have you basically given kind of like an outline or like how much is there to learn at that point?
1: It's a a real range. So you know a fair amount because you have to have been able to convince your colleagues that it's an idea worth pursuing.
0: And do you know every piece that is going to be in that exhibition or do you just rarely. sort of have it
1: okay you rarely you when you're when you've proposed an an exhibition sometimes you know like this is the scope of this it was this suite of 12 works and that's the exhibition idea but a lot of times you wait until it's approved to finalize the checklist to design the space because you want to make sure you have they fit well they work together so no the approval of the exhibition is fairly early in the process usually
0: is it sort of like you know what what's there is like this is the story we want to tell here's the kind of stuff that might be in it what, what are you yeah actually? you
1: say this is this is an exhibition i think is worth doing this is why we say why moma why now why should this happen here why should we do this now and being able to answer those questions, usually you have an idea of this is the scale that it should be. You know, it couldn't be less than this because if I can't highlight the work of these photographers, then then it won't make sense. But there, you know, there can be some fiddling around the edges. And sometimes some of the smaller research questions and Curiosities are the ones that take the longest to solve. So you know you're doing it, but you it takes a while to get there. And so. the
0: committee is not going to care about the little, little thing, the small. No, they yeah. they
1: trust. You know, I mean, we all trust one another. So once once you have a green light to do something, you continue to talk about it with your boss and your colleagues. But it's not it's not usually no no one's going to pick apart.
0: So you've basically, you've got your direction once you've got it approved. So what happens then? What are you doing?
1: So let's say one of the things that an exhibition I worked on recently with a colleague named Star Figura in Drawings and Prints, it was called Making Space, Women Artists and Post-War Abstraction. And so one of the hardest parts of that was getting the title approved. No, that's not the hardest part um but it's true getting a title that the museum you know that we as curators and the museum feel comfortable with that's a big thing that we do is that Um,
0: that a lot of cooks in the kitchen kind of coming up with not
1: not too many but but (laughs) but opinionated (laughs) um and you know and thoughtful cooks so cooks who think about marketing you know in a way that i don't that's not my job, mm-hmm. but I care. I certainly want people—I want there to be a clarity to it and an elegance and all. So once you have your idea and you have the space that it's going to be in, then you start thinking, okay, well, if this space divides neatly into roughly six other spaces— What's the organizing principle of each of those spaces? What works speak to those organizing principles? Actually, I should say, before you even try to map it onto the spaces, you say, what's the most important work that we want on view? Like
0: what's the th- star of the right, show? This
1: won't be an exhibition if this gets taken out. And so that exercise of saying this is really what's most important helps you build galleries around those works. So then you say, okay, if this is the star of this... What else would make a meaningful connection of works around those?
0: And usually there's a book going at the same time as this, There can be.
1: The one I'm describing right now, Making Space, did not have a book. It was just a collection exhibition. And so we um, had—it's true when there's a book, sometimes you've thought through some of these things in advance and there's less a question of, like, how you would define the edges of it because you know. But it's part of the fun of a collection exhibition is that— we own it all. So you can really think broadly, cast a wide net, and even some decisions you make on the floor. You bring something and you say, Oh, I love this so much. But gosh, it's really just too heavy. You know, it feels like a black hole at the center of the room.
0: If everything's not in the collection, if it's you're getting stuff from on loan or whatnot, are you the one who's going to be? Paggling or, <laughs> or requesting or how does that work?
1: Um, loans of photographs are a little bit easier than loans of some paintings where, you know, Glenn Lowry can often be involved because if we're persuading a colleague who has an important painting that they want to lend it to the museum, then sometimes we're leaving a big hole in their walls and we have to help them figure that out. Yeah,
0: paintings are sort of the charismatic megafauna <laughs> of the museum, whereas photography is more lowly like
1: lowly photographs it's No, the reptile I'm...
0: gallery no I say I say this with love
1: it feels like love um, no the, the photographs it's just that there it is a medium of multiples and yeah. that's partly what's interesting about okay. it it's not that there aren't unique photographs and we will work very hard with our colleagues to get the right prints of the right images here but there but Ansel som- Adams
0: did it like in he, series of yeah, 20 or yeah, whatever well yes probably exactly probably not 20 but
1: well might sometimes okay <laughs> but maybe the ones that we might be interested in. Maybe there is only one or two. So it it depends. But negotiating loans is certainly a part of the story, for sure.
0: Is that ever kind of your personal connections with other? Sure. Yeah, we know
1: our colleagues write to us and they say, oh, Sarah, you know, these six works would be so important to have for our show. You have the best print. This is a key part of the story that I want to tell. And then I have to negotiate with making sure that we don't need it for another purpose here. Do you ever trade
0: like you know, baseball cards or <laughs> I mean,
1: it, doesn't, it doesn't come down to that. Well um but it does you know it's like trying to say, okay, we had this on view last year so our conservator thinks that it should be rested and we have another plan to have it on view in another couple years. So for conservation concerns, it can't be on, you know, there are things like that that happen in photography that don't happen with paintings.
0: I like the idea of a, uh, a photo. I guess it has to be rested because it can't be exposed to too much light, right? right. I, I'm imagining a photo is just sort of like a like basketball player right. or something like right. chilling on the sidelines. Right. Silk
1: sheets and all. No, um, <laughs> we do, we say resting the photographs and it means keeping it in a cold, dark place and not yeah. letting anybody look at it.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, and it has to. I guess, and just otherwise it would just turn yellow or fade out, right?
1: I mean, different processes have different stability, and our conservator helps us sort of come up with guidelines. But yeah, usually once something's been on view for three months, then it should rest for a year. That's like a general rule of thumb.
0: So I got away from the process of actually doing the <laughs> exhibition, and I keep going down these like kind of detours, but that's fine. As I, uh, it's, it's all work. Yeah, right? It's all work. This is work, detours. So it seems like a lot of work to me to put together a book while you're also putting together an exhibition. Like, and and so, how about
1: three at once? Yeah. Three, yeah.
0: So how many people do you have kind of at your command doing that? Like, how many people are well, you working no, no with? no
1: one's at my command. We're
0: all... <laughs> <laughs> how, many uh, people, how many colleagues do you work with? I, you
1: I'm, I am very lucky that here I might have uh, one curatorial assistant who's working with me on a five-year research initiative around the work of August Sonder. And I have a 12-month intern working with me on the Brazilian Modernist show. Mm-hmm. And I have another colleague who's working with me on... On the Francis Benjamin Johnston Hampton album, which were those 1900 Paris pictures, and I have another colleague who's working with me on the Dorothea Lange research. So there's there's kind of like a whole team of people, and maybe I'm only sometimes, and there's some overlap too. Some people are working on more than one project, but
0: how long? How long does it take for one of those research projects to actually turn into an exhibition? Like before, I mean,
1: it can be years, uh, really.
0: Yeah, so you'll have someone just start with the seed of something, saying, this is something we're interested in at the museum, and (laughs) just keep working at it until...
1: Well, it depends on, you know, a 12-month intern is only here for a year, or I had two marvelous research fellows who were here for a year each. So sometimes they come in at the beginning of a project, sometimes they come in more in the middle, and you know, you try to help articulate both in your own mind and for their sake, like, what's a manage? you know, what can you solve in a year? What can you, or for some, you know, obviously many colleagues are here for longer than that. So what's their contribution to this project? And um,
0: before you said that ideas for exhibitions kind of just bubble up from whatever you guys are working on, is it usually something does start as one of these long-term research projects? Like you guys have your research assistants looking into stuff and then it kind of Just hits like a certain. It it gets ripe. It gets. Well, I would say by the
1: time we have a research assistant working on something, it's already clear enough that it's going to be approved or, the, point. or okay. yeah, that, it, that it's an idea that's worth prioritizing. So the sort of very early percolation is more you know, having lunch with my boss or the other senior curatorial colleagues where we'll say like, this is really interesting to me these days or I've been thinking a lot about mm. questions related to this.
0: And then you'll start doing the research and then, and then once you get to the point where it's like, okay, this is something that we really can turn into, you'll start assigning people to it. Yeah. And then that can Take years after yeah. that. <laughs> so once you've gotten once you've gotten something approved, potentially it can, or, still, take it can still take years to make it work because you have to do that much. So and then finally, that brings us back to actually executing
1: it, <laughs> right? So you know, it's. Um, I mean, the fun parts are when you're like choosing the wall colors and deciding on the framing and you're installing the work is like the biggest thrill. You know, when you go to the floor and the they bring up the preparators bring up a bin of works from the frame shop, and you finally get to see like, oh my gosh, these are really I'm gonna lay these out and see how they all live together in space
0: mm. that's that's the moment well and that's your job is nearly done at that point right yes yeah i w- mean
1: other than a few tours yeah
0: i was going to say so when is your when is your work with with an exhibition over is it on opening day is it
1: well, it's opening day minus, you know, ongoing maintenance for the exhibition and tours. You know, we we try to help people enjoy the things that we put so much into. And so usually the day it closes is really the end of it.
0: What about the wall text? How much is that is that all you or typically a,
1: a team the same team of people who help research it. So we all write wall texts. We all nobody signs any of them, which is a curious thing. Come to think of it, because we also want those wall texts to have a point of view like we this we don't like it. It's not like some omniscient something force is saying this matters, but it's really more helping a viewer have a specific point of access into a work of art that they might not have otherwise had.
0: Do you have, are you also editing other people's wall text?
1: We've been talking more and more as an institution about sort of the craft of writing, and Leah Dickerman and Sarah Bodenson have been convening us to sort of think about what does it mean to write about art and writing is different from being a curator although it's a super integral part of it because it's not enough to make things look great together you want people to understand something about why you've put these things together and why they should care.
0: Do you have any pet peeves as someone who has to write and edit this stuff? Because, I mean, descriptions on museum walls can be something. <laughs>
1: like, I am very, very grateful that the museum demands a an attention to what the experience of reading a wall label would be. And yes, I certainly walk through other... Museums, other museums, yes, other museums. (laughs) It's certainly not ours. Where you feel like, are you trying to be, you know, opaque about this? Like, so we really, it's a little bit about my object-based interest in the medium. Is that I would rather write about something, and the museum would rather that I write about something specific to that maker or that work, as opposed to some truism about surrealism in you know in a generic sense that yeah.
0: could be true so you're you're shooting for like a little bit of history a little bit of context not something weird and philosophical yeah oh of. yeah
1: yeah and i and i feel like you know they something that speaks to a particular object whereas i think there can be a kind of general laziness of like well, you, you know, you say something, and when I read a wall, and here's what you want to hear my pet peeve, when you read a wall label that could apply to any other number of works, you think to yourself, oh, come on, you know, give me something real. Are there
0: any words that you, like, bam, that you're like, I can't, like, adjectives, adverbs um, that are just like, you're like, no, I can't. I
1: um, I mean, th- what I, what the really hard part is when you realize that you've been using a word too much, and <laughs> okay. you're like, so, you know, unadorned or something like, you know, when you when you realize that I myself am guilty of relying on unblinking, mm. I think to myself, oh, my gosh, I've definitely said that one too many times.
0: It's like whenever I hear myself say, I imagine when I'm re-listening to my recording of this show. Yeah, I've noticed that, listeners. Sorry, you don't have to email us. But so, yeah, we all we all have those um, moments.
1: And, you know. For me also, I've grown up working here. So I see things that I may have written, you know, 15 years ago. And I think to myself, gosh, I'm not sure I should have gotten away with that.
0: How much time does it take to write one of those
1: I mean, a good little wall label can take a long
0: time, but if you... have like an hour, five hours, two days. Oh, a
1: wall label shouldn't be more than an hour.
0: Is <laughs> this <laughs> like, like you write a line, you go off, wait for the muse to come back? Is it the,
1: the No, the wall label... Okay. You, where you want to be with a wall label when you sit down to write is you think to yourself, okay, here's this object, and here's something I want someone to know about this object. So then... Yes, I agonize. Probably maybe an hour is not quite enough to describe how much I agonize over it. But that's my problem. A wall label is one idea that you try to articulate well. But an essay, you know, it can be a long time. And I wrote an essay recently where I spent basically the month of August on it. And then I was assigned a really brilliant editor and then pretty much spent much of the last month rewriting thing. it to make it Editors better will do that yeah um, and that the, was for a book that was uh, good. Yeah, yeah that's for a book so what, what
0: about the what about the text that goes you know on the, the wall, wall gallery what do you call that section, section text or text. intro text depending yeah. on if it's because that's really what frames your understanding of the argument yeah right? like people so through. those
1: those take longer but again by the time you're writing that you write that fairly close to the end of the um in other words the idea for the exhibition should be clear in your mind. So when you're writing the intro text, you may have written a book about it already. You may have written the individual wall labels. And you kind of know, yeah, what's the broader story? And we try at MoMA to keep those pretty short. So that means that you have to be pretty disciplined about what you want to say.
0: So how much of your time do you spend on books versus actually, you know, putting together the exhibitions? Like, how how would you say your time is split between those? I
1: probably, the book, it takes at least as much time. Mm-hmm. In part, that's because the books that I've been, well, I love books, so I, I do spend a lot of time working on that. And, you know, an exhibition can take different scales, whereas the book You know Our publications department, a little bit like our exhibition committee meetings, if you have a really good idea, our publications department finds a way to make it work at sort of the scale that you declare to be the best scale for that thing. So I spend a lot of time thinking about books. I also think as a photography curator, there's this wonderful historical relationship between reproducing photographs and books. And so I love thinking about how my work ties into that history.
0: And so how many, just raw numbers, how many exhibitions will you actually execute in a year?
1: Usually not more than one. Sometimes they bunch up because of other things. You know, you to. Yeah, (laughs) It's a question of the optimal versus what has to happen for various reasons. Um, But it's rare to work on more than one exhibition a year. But a publication, sometimes you can be working on more than one of those Mm -hmm. at once.
0: And do you ever do a book Outside of an exhibition, or are they oh oh you do sometimes
1: I do. Um, this Francis Benjamin Johnston Hampton album book is I'm not doing an exhibition. It's really just okay. a book,
0: and that's going to be sold in the store. It's going to be sold online. Where's how's yeah, that going
1: to um, Just to pitch my uh, no, it's uh, you can buy it on Amazon. You can buy it in the MoMA bookstore. Mm-hmm. MoMA has a distributor, and so mm-hmm. they try to make sure that our books end up in all kinds of good places. So, sometimes I sometimes I'll like I did a book once and a friend of mine sent me a picture from J Crew that it was like on view as part of their display. And I was like, "Huh, I wonder how that ended up there.
0: Is it better for a curator to put out books or do exhibitions or is you have to do some combination of both? what's like better to have on your resume?"
1: I guess it depends on what job you're applying for. <laughs> so, I I think that probably you know, a big prestigious sixth floor, meaning a large loan exhibition with um, many works, that's probably, you know, the can't get any better. But I personally am so fond of books that I'm happy for the currency that I'm trading in to be a dominated by books it hasn't been a problem
0: so far also photography it seems like that maybe lends itself to it because people i mean that it's a good medium
1: right and it's almost like the history of photographs and books is so rich that if you're kind of adding to that that feels like a super rewarding spot to be Mm -hmm.
0: miscellany (laughs) we don't have to belabor it (laughs) but is if you describe no, I, it as miscellany usually it's not a good sign but no, so yeah no, what is what is that part of your well, job well
1: miscellany let's just say that i think part of being a curator is also being a convener so that's convening everyone from artists mm-hmm. and collectors and gallerists and so a lot of what we do is trying to pay attention to those, all of those, the whole universe of people who have a stake in what we're doing here. And so miscellany is probably the worst way of describing it, uh, even though I know that was my word. But it means I talk a lot to, you know, people who control estates of artists or galleries or committee members. I talk to a lot of artists all the time. You know, sometimes they bring in work to show us what they're thinking about. And you know, if you close yourself off from all that
0: miscellany, then you're really missing. So it sounds like miscellany is sort of networking around the art world and, like, getting it, to know all the players.
1: I'd say that's that's true, but it can also be something like a colleague is looking to do an exhibition of
0: kittens, let's say. No, they're not.
1: But anyway, if they were. I mean, it would um, be...
0: It would be a hit. Talk about a blockbuster. <laughs> Total blockbuster. Just, I, I can only imagine what the reviews would be, but <laughs> but who cares? But, the,
1: but you know, I. so it's even inside the museum, a colleague is sort of thinking of an idea, and they're like, I've been thinking about this. And, you know, or someone's traveling here from somewhere else around the world, and you think— I want to make time to see you, to talk to you. Or a young person is looking for a job and they want to talk. So it's kind of networking, but maybe not necessarily for yourself. Yeah, yeah, I guess networking is
0: wrong. But it seems like a lot of your job, like you said, is you you get works from or you borrow works from colleagues you know. Or I guess if you want to put on an exhibition of an artist's work, it helps to know the artist. And it's
1: even just like... On a fundamental level, I think um, the museum carves out time for us to do research in a, in the broadest sense. And it's through that idea of thinking about different ways of doing things, mm-hmm. which emerge from meeting people who are doing things in different ways from different places. And it's like if you want your mind to be expanded like the way that you've always done it is in, you know, inadequate or is just one way. You have to spend time trying to understand how
0: other people do things and see things. And when you say that, you mean like going and seeing other exhibitions? Or and seeing...
1: even talking to colleagues who are writers or philosophers or yeah. artists or curators mm-hmm.
0: from other countries – If you want to meet an artist because you just like their work, do you just email them, say, hey, I'm a curator for MoMA. Do you want to grab lunch? It's pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You just have like a free pass to go meet (laughs) them.
1: I mean, I I do. I reflect on that every once in a while. A lot. I'm fortunate that most of the emails or calls that I make, I get a response. And I know that in the world that's not. Always the case. going to
0: say, does anyone ever say no?
1: Sure, sure, sure. They really? say no. Yeah, someone yeah. says
0: no to like I. I'm a curator at MoMA. You could potentially have an exhibition here, or like I. Oh, this is like well, or just like in no, general. No, no, no.
1: I would, I would say no. Maybe they, maybe somebody wouldn't say no. You know, if yeah. I say I'd like to meet you, they yeah. wouldn't say no. But I, I ask for a lot of things all the time too, oh, okay. um, and you know, think people say no. They're busy.
0: Yeah, that. Yeah, that. People that, say no.
1: It ha- it happens.
0: Okay. The um,
1: we try to have it be a no that comes after, like let's talk about it. Okay, fine. No.
0: Mm-hmm. What counts as an emergency for a curator? An emergency.
1: Okay. Well, an emergency is when a work of art is at risk in any <laughs> okay. way. So that's an emergency. We try to really have those never happen, but.
0: But it, it happens. You know. It, um, what, what, how does a work of art end up at risk?
1: Let's say the temperature or humidity in a certain environment is no longer as stable as it was either promised to be if it's out on loan. That's an emergency. Um. <laughs>
0: That's not uh, you have, you have uh, – yeah, you have this look like there's a very specific emergency you're yeah, calling right now. You know, it
1: happens. Well, um, can you, can
0: you, you, know, you tell me anon- as anonymous or as, right. as detailed as possible?
1: Uh, well, let's just say The museum systems here are admirable. Like we keep things at an incredibly stable temperature and humidity, the light levels and, you know, all of these things are set. But you send things out into the world. And, you know, let's say you get a picture of something and you realize that there's a curtain that's supposed to make a room dark that's been pulled back. And that might mean that there's light, you know. Full on sunlight—that's a problem. That's, so we, yeah, you know, that's that's an art emergency. We were talking
0: about faded photographs before. Right. That's,
1: um, we do not like direct sunlight on photographs. That is not. That's that, not acceptable.
0: At that point, you call and you. Yeah. You, yeah. <laughs> you you solve it and you work with the
1: conservators and you work with the curators and the registrar and it all it all works out. Has but, MoMA ever had something destroyed at another museum? Well. We've had things stolen. Oh, really? What um, got it stolen? was a while ago. I, w- I did a project on the fiftieth anniversary of a exhibition that was here called "New Documents," okay. and at the back of that book, we did stories from the archives because, again, the research was so amazing that we thought, "Let's tell some of these stories." And so, one of the stories we told was that Diane Arbus's photographs, which circulated in this traveling exhibition, not once. Not twice, but three times, mm. pictures of hers were stolen off the walls of these other museums. <laughs> oh <my. laughs> I mean, crazy. And one of them, the our registrar is writing to her counterpart at these museums, being like, "You can't be so cavalier
0: about this, you know." Um, Wait, what What is the f- how do you apologize for that? I well mean, there's some there, really there, there great fi- there's some really great apology yeah. letters where oh, there, there's where, like is there like a financial pay and There's there's, a-
1: there's an insurance value. But in part to make these exhibitions whole, we had to write to Diane Arbus and say, you know, the first time we say, I'm so sorry this work has been stolen. And then you have to write to her again, I'm so sorry another work of yours has been stolen. <laughs> and then a third. You know, you really and she Oh, I wish I could remember the exact phrasing of it. But basically, she had an incredibly good-natured response to these thefts saying, you know, I know I should just be
0: flattered. That's a you great, know, yeah. I, I know
1: I should just be flattered, but could we raise the insurance value beyond $25 or whatever it had been?
0: Oh, God. Well, what year was that? It was 1968. Yeah, that's the same. Yeah. <laughs> it was 20. Inflation has raised Inflation. that a little bit, but still, but
1: it, you know, so... our market
0: was down, I guess. I don't
1: know. <laughs> the, at that no. point, the photo market never yeah. had yeah. been. So. Yeah,
0: fair enough. So that's a great story. So that's Okay, so that's like worst case.
1: Yeah, that's pretty bad.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I guess I would take the curtain over that. And another question I I like to ask, but like, what's what's like something that is typically stressful for you? Like, what is just like a daily stressor?
1: Well, daily stressors are the overwhelming number of messages in my inbox. I would say is a daily stress. Like on, and I don't know because there are things I don't respond to, and you're like, oh, that feels terrible. I hate that. Now Google reminds Um, you. I yes, that's yeah. funny. They are. It's the worst. That's, mm, yeah. Can't decide if it's better or worse not knowing. So that's a stress. I would say, you know, trying to make sure that all of the things that you're working on are moving forward. You know, it's a lot. So you feel a little bit like a juggler.
0: The final question I'm going to be asking everybody. What is your favorite piece of art at MoMA?
1: Oh, I resist this question so often. I honestly, I always yeah, say, yeah, I know. I'm I know. asking. I know. I'm asking. It's you truly. Tell, it's a truly pick like baby. pick your favorite baby. Yeah, just do I, it. I make. I make a practice of and never. For doing you,
0: it. it's going to be especially. Excruciating, I mean, I but really I'm,
1: care about all of these. Thankfully, babies. they're
0: photos, so you, they can't get angry at you. <laughs> like, they can't. <laughs> okay, you can't hurt their feelings. So
1: if I'm going to say my maybe my, you're trustees, but my that's... my very my current favorite. How about that? Yeah, your current uh, favorite. Good. Today, if I were to say my current favorite, it's a photograph by this German-born Brazilian photographer named Gertrudis Altschul. And it's called Lines and Tones. And it's a picture of two buildings in Sao Paulo and the space between them. And one building is incredibly angular and the other has this delicious curve to it. And so... You get a sense that it's both about the architecture, the sort of burgeoning urbanism of Sao Paulo in 1952, but because she calls it lines and tones, you also understand that she's trying to say, like, this is about something that transcends the place where it was made.
0: Yeah, some physicality. Yeah, Yeah,
1: it's a really great picture
0: is that up on the walls right now?
1: No, sadly. But I hope it will be before get, get too it up long. There. <laughs> uh, I'd like to. Um it's in our second volume of photography at MoMA. Okay. So oh, you can you can see it back there. To the books. Yeah, yeah, back to the books.
0: <laughs> All right, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for Thank for you so much. Coming I'm to great. Chat. That's it for this week's episode of Working. If you stayed with us through that entire uh, extra long episode, thank you. You are one of our super fans, uh, and I hope it was worth your time. And if it was, please, please, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. If you have any thoughts, questions, uh, would like to encourage me to stick to the 45-minute range in the future, uh, send me an email at working at slate.com. The producer on Working is the indispensable, Jessamine Molly. A thank you to Justin D. Wright for our ad music and join us next week for more MoMA. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine